This is Decoding Learning Differences with Kimberlyn Lavelle. This episode is Autism Lived. It is an interview with Peter Crosby. Peter is in France, and I found him just by typing in Autism Advantage into Google, um, be, particularly because I have a book called Dys- The Dyslexic Advantage. I wanted to know if there's some, something similar for autism, and I assumed there was. So I came across Peter's website, the Autism Advantage, or autism-advantage.com, and he has all these articles about autism and some of the advantages that you might find if you have autism. So I would recommend checking out his website, but this interview shares his story of discovering the autism within himself at a much later age in life and how it kind of helped him make sense of the entirety of the rest of his, the earlier parts of his life. He also, through a lot of his research and talking with various families, he's come with some, a lot of wisdom um, that we get into a lot more towards the, the middle to end of the interview, I would say getting into some of the, the real meat of what, what we can do in our mindset as parents. One of the things he suggests is to try to help them be more autistic. And so listen for that, and he can kind of give a little bit of insight into it. Um, There was one portion of the interview where there was some sound issues for a little bit, um, possibly because of the distance of our conversation. But so a little, a few minutes got edited out, but um, we kind of summarized it right after that anyway. So it all worked out. And I hope you greatly enjoy this interview with Peter Crosby. At the end, please email me to tell me what were your takeaways? What did you learn? What are you, how will you apply this? Kimberlyn at decodinglearningdifferences.com. Without further ado, here's our interview with Peter Crosby. Hello, Peter. Thank you so much for taking time to be part of this um, podcast today. I just wanted to start by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey and your experiences. Well, hi, um, Kimberlyn. So I'm I'm Peter Crosby. Um, uh, my journey. Well, I. Uh, I'm in my late 60s, so it's a bit of a journey. Um, I am a musician, or kind of more was a musician perhaps, but you know, a magician, musician, and I still am really. Uh, I grew up in Australia in small towns in the middle of nowhere mostly. Um, managed to become a professional musician and make it work. Uh, and, you know, do a lot of the sort of successful professional musician things. And I managed to sort of tour the world and make records and all of that stuff. Um, And through that, I had the opportunity to work in London 
And basically I went to London and I never went back to Australia. And I moved uh, with my, my wife to Belgium. And we lived in Belgium for nearly 20 years. And we've now lived in uh, France where I live in Paris for oh, just over 10 years. So yes, I have a wife, I mentioned that along the way. And uh, I have two uh, young adult uh, children. So, and oh yes, uh, seeing this is about autism, my autism story is a kind of very simple one is that one day I was sitting at home about well, this is five and a half years ago now. And just by accident, I just heard something uh, I often listen to the BBC, radio BBC and there was just a fleeting remark that someone made um, on a program about autism and, um, you know, the, the penny dropped straight away and I, uh, I like, like most people, I didn't really know anything about, about autism. I thought it was something that, you know, some kids had, I had a a couple of friends who had OCC kids, but I didn't really have anything to do with them. And I spent, you know, 15 minutes on um, on Google and and recognised that I was I was autistic. Although the things that that were the giveaways for me are not the ones. One of the things about autism is when you when you're autistic, the sort of view from the inside is very different from the view from the outside. And the things that I recognized straight away in what I was seeing is nothing to do with the kind of the social stuff or the language stuff or any of that, but things like um, sensitivity to light and sound. That was, that was the first one I got straight away. Um, Cause both of those, uh, um, certain sounds are a real problem for me. I always have been. Um, um, and the thing with light is I'd never realized I had a sensitivity to light until suddenly I saw it written in front of me. And I realized that, you know, I nearly always drive the car with the sun visor down, for example, it's just this constant thing of trying to reduce the level of light. Uh, a few other things. I have a really poor sense of balance. I'm quite clumsy. I bump into things and people all the time. It was, it was those sort of things that, that, uh, gave it away for me as well as the fact that I, I can't look anyone in the eye and never and never been able to. And just seeing all that in front of me, it was like, oh my God. And um, I managed to get a diagnosis very quickly after that. I had, in about a month, I had my diagnosis and I became autistic. So that's my sort of life stroke autism journey. And then I've spent the last five years or so trying to make sense of all that. Um, both in the present, in how I live and how I go about being an autistic person in the world, and also sort of revisiting my my life through that lens and understanding, you know, all the things that have happened and why, and it just puts so many things into context. And the other sort of interesting thing as well is that 
my most vivid memories from when I was a child and growing up and, you know, even as a young adult, they're all like uh, sort of light bulby autism moments. It's like there were these signs all the time saying, uh uh-uh, look at this, you know, you're you're autistic. They're, They're the things that somehow I... I remember in my life these these sort of flash moments um, uh, that obviously I, I didn't pick up. Obviously, no one no one else picked up. I mean, when I was a kid, there wasn't even a diagnosis of autism, not not to speak of, and certainly not for people like me. Um, so yeah, that's my kind of story. So so looking back, how do you feel like that has played out, or what are some of those memories that you're like thinking of that? Well, I think the you know the earliest one, a very early memory I have uh, is when I was about six or seven, and realizing that uh, I didn't get people and people didn't get me, um, or kids, not people, kids, um, and that was I have a very vivid memory of a birthday party, that my birthday party. And realizing that uh, even at my own birthday party, I couldn't connect with the other kids, um, and that was the last birthday party I've ever had. I've, I've never had a party after that. I mean, I've had sort of you know quiet whatever with with friends or my family, but I've never uh, or any sort of party. I've never held any sort of party. That was the last one I ever sort of put my hand up for. So, I mean, that, that's a sort of a, a, a big one. Um, um, yeah, a, a, just a, a lot of, a, a few events where I, I had real trouble communicating with people who were trying to communicate with me. Um, when, you know, when I was a kid, especially through adolescence, I've been quite how I managed to get through adolescence without ever getting beaten up or anything like that. I, I really don't know because I was, I was just asking for trouble because people would ask me genuine questions and I would be unable to answer or I could see that they were trying to talk to me, but, you know, being unable to really respond in a way that was sort of expected or not knowing what to say, saying the wrong thing, constantly saying the wrong thing, of course. Um, But as the great blessing of growing up in these very small country towns where I grew up in, you just had to, you just had to get along with everyone because there was no one else. You know, if, if you wanted to, have kids to play with you just had to play with whoever was available it didn't matter if they were a bit weird or didn't you know the boys used to play with the girls you know we used to play with the kids that were older play with the kids you know, all that stuff that you don't sort of do if you have a choice but we didn't have a choice so I was it's one of the things I, I sometimes think of my life my sort of autistic life as really it's that that line 
in the Bible, although I'm not religious at all, about you know going through the eye of the needle, getting a camel through that. That's a bit my life. It's just a whole lot of circumstances that made it possible for me, and I. And I, I, I recognize how, how lucky I've been, but in these small communities, it was okay to be a bit different. You know, it was, people just got on with it because, because we had to. So, um, and even the thing with getting into music was also fantastic because I was, I was good at it. And that got me through a lot that, that gave me something to do it gave me a place in in my sort of amongst my peers my social group it gave me some friends it gave me something to talk about uh, eventually it gave me a way of having relationships with girls it meant everything um, even though it, it, at times it was really 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 difficult um, especially between about when I was about 15 or so until I was in my early 20s, 22, 23, when my, I managed to get a kind of, my music career started to be a proper career. But that period in the middle there, six or seven years of, uh, I mean, that's tra that transition from being a kind of school kid to being a young adult and working and stuff, I, I, you know, it's difficult for everyone, but. Yeah, that was that was really tough. Is there anything that you think would have made it easier for you, like looking back now? Um, it, it's really, really interesting question, and it's one that I I just ask myself so often, and I, you know, I, it boils down to I think, and also another way, perhaps, of phrasing it is: if I'd known I was autistic, how could it, you know, what would that have changed? And in some ways, um, I, I'm concerned that I would be concerned that in actual fact, if I'd known, I wouldn't have put myself out there as much as I did. Because um, I recognize now in some ways how, how sort of risky that was. Um, and, and certainly, as I said, I took some real knocks along the way, but um, it, it's also, it's a hard question to answer because, you know, when I, I grew up in the, I mean, I was born in 1953. So I was growing up even as in my adolescence was in the late sixties. Well, you know, what, what did sort of support for autistic people mean then? Um, you know, one of the things that I would say now, um, if, if that was me now, and I was sort of adolescent now, that the thing that I would hope someone would say to me is spend time with other autistic people, in, you know, of, of your same age. Well, at the time, you know, I, there was no way of finding those people. There were no, there were no groups. There was no, you know, autism didn't exist really. So, it, it's it, you know it's, I think it's hard to say. I think it, it's interesting looking at the journeys of, of, of sort of older autistic people like me, and and what we managed, what how we managed to get through it, you know, without any of that. Um, so that 
that's a roundabout way of not answering your question at all. I accept that, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I certainly, as I said, I, I, there's lots of things I wouldn't have done if I'd known, and perhaps some some things that I that I would have done, um, and perhaps there's some things I could have handled differently, knowing what my limitations were, especially on the kind of social side that comes with working and having a career and all that. Um, do you feel like your autism or the whatever that if the autism has anything to do with you becoming a musician like are those and I know you know some of what you've written and I've and, and other articles you've linked to they've talked about like that traditionally we don't really think of any creative pursuits as being autistic and then we think of music as a creative pursuit and they're kind of and they and the one article um that you had referenced on your website i'm trying to remember which one it was talked about um that there really is there is a connection there that isn't um isn't illuminated very often do you do you think it played at all or do you think it's just like a different i don't know um, why? Well, I, I mean, I think in my case, it, 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 it completely played. I mean, the way I, um, the way I see and understand music, I recognize now, I, I, I see it completely, uh, you know, as, as an autistic person and it, it, it fits the way we, we tend to see the world and, um, you know, for example, the, the you know that that eye for detail or ear for detail, for example. Um, I also seem to have this relationship with time, music in time, that other people don't have, or have. No, that's that's not true at all. But they, it's they seem to be able to access a feeling for form in time, not in the same way or not to the same extent that I, I can. I can sort of see a piece of music flat, as it were. All, all the events, I see them, I can see them simultaneously as opposed to sequentially. So then you say, oh, that bit, can we can put it there or this bit needs that bit. And that, you know, the, the thing of form is always something that I've... Um, I've always been good at it. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, I've actually got a, a music site. I don't know if you've ever visited that. Peter I think it is. And I do a lot of analysis there of, well, it's, you know, popular music, vernacular music, rock music, and so on. Um, so, yeah, I, f I feel definitely that, um, that's that's been a, a, a real plus, and and now that I'm mixing with more autistic people, there's a lot of autistic people in in creative fields, a lot. Um, a lot of people writing. Um, a few people 
in art, not not always people with a high profile, but high enough, pro- or, you know, people who are working and doing good work, design, things like that. Um, even things like graphic design and so on. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think, I definitely think of autism as, as uh, well, it's very creative, not to say that non-autism isn't creative also, but I, I always, I, I tend to think of it as, as, as something that's, uh, you know, opens the door to, to perhaps a more creative way of seeing the world. But it's, in some ways, I'm not, don't mean, oh, you know, we're clever or we're smart. It's just, it, you, you treat information differently and that, that by definition is what creativity is. That's all. Um, you know, I have a creative way of surfing the internet, it seems. You know, when I surf the internet, it's very different to the way my family looks at the internet. They, they sometimes come to me and say, oh, can you find this? Can you find that? And equally, I sometimes have to go to them because my creative way of surfing the internet is not, not helping me find what I'm looking for. But yeah, I, I, I think I definitely think of autism in terms of creative fields and as a, you know, leading to you know, a very creative way of looking at the world. Yeah, I and I love what you were saying there about um, that it that it's like different that the, for lack of a better word, the neurotypical versus the autistic person might both be in the same field, but they're looking at it differently. And the autistic person has their own creativity, their own version of creativity that is in some ways more creative because it's so, so, so much more unique than a more neurotypical creative person. Yes. yeah, I mean, by, by definition, I mean, I know from my own experience, you know, if you're working in, in any kind of creative arts field, um, the object of the exercise is to do something that hasn't been done before. That's what you're trying to do. So the ability to see things differently gives you a bit of a head start. Um, the trouble is, I, I feel I've... Well, this is the whole thing also about autism is one of the things also, like when I look back about my career and so on, I can see that I had all that, but what would really work well for me would have been having a kind of opposite of that to work with. And I, I never really had that. Um, I was always working kind of by myself. Um, but even 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 that is, as I said before, that's one of the limitations of of being autistic in terms of my own career of my life because I had real um, real trouble working with people um, because you tend to see things in black and white. You want things done in a certain way, and so on and so on. And it takes a lot of trust. And I, I found or realized early on that it was just basically uh, easier to be in a position where you were telling other people what to do. So that's what 
I got myself into that position that where I was a kind of a leader. Um, but what would have worked better for me would have been to be more part of something. But that was too... I mean, I think that comes back to your earlier question. If I'd realised that, I, I could have made more of an effort to, to to go there, to go to that place in in terms of working uh, working with other people. Um, so that you know, I, I I definitely don't want to say, oh, you know, autistic people, fantastic, creative, you know, we're all geniuses. Yes, but that's you, you don't always want a genius. You know, sometimes you just want someone who, who knows how to put stuff together. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of, oh, that's a genius idea. What do we do with it? It's, there's a lot of that, I think. Yeah, we need a lot of balance in life. And we need people who recognize their strengths and their weaknesses and can balance with other people with complementary strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, you know, I, I just think, I mean, I don't know if you've looked into any, I mean, something, I mean, you know, autism is such a vast unexplored field, but there's been some really interesting work done by, what do they call them? Um, not forensic psych, uh, psychology. Basically, people who, who try, who are psychologists, but who look, look at history through the eyes of, of psychology and seeing, um, autistic people and how, how they lived in the role, they trying to work out the, the role they played in society, say 50,000 years ago. Um, and, and you see there, and so that they go back to sort of tribes who have groups of people or tribes who have had minimal contact with say Western society, or they're looking at historical records of, you know, these sort of first contact experiences and anthropology and so on and you see there that the autistic people when it's clear that there, what we're looking at is autistic people because obviously there's these are not people who have a diagnosis you see there that that's that's how it works that they're they're complementary to um the, the non-autistic people in their in their tribe or in their family group or whatever they bring something that the others don't and, and vice versa. Um, and there's, there's those, um, you know, there's the story, for example, in one of, there's actually a book, which I, I never read, but I've read some of the, I've seen some of the sort of um, the authors talking about it, but they, for example, they found a tribe uh, somewhere in the wilds of Siberia, um, very remote, very ancient kind of group of people who still lived a sort of traditional nomadic kind of life and they their life is built around reindeer they have rain, this huge reindeer herd which is a communal herd owned by the tribe which is i don't know how many people and they have a couple of thousand reindeer and there's one person in that tribe who knows every single reindeer and also their what do you call it, um, their, their lines. So that, that reindeer is related to this one and that related to that one. And this one here, you know, 10 years ago, their, their father or their mother had this disease and so on and so on. So he was a really, really valued, important member of the tribe, even though he basically kept to himself. 
he he hardly spoke. He obviously was very uncomfortable around people and so on and so on. But because of that, he had a place in the tribe. He was supported. It also gave him, of course, access to, he had a wife. Um, because if you, you know, in, in those sort of tribal groups, if you have a status, if you have a place, then you have your, um, you're a good catch, basically. So, so he had a, a wife and so on. You know, there's things like that. I mean, it's a great story. I don't know if you've read the Simon Baron Cohen book that's just come out. I think it's called The Pattern Seekers, which I'm sort of whatever I feel a bit mixed about Simon Baron Cohen. But anyway, it's an interesting book. And he, he cites the case there, which is a contemporary, a, a young autistic man who he goes out with a fisherman uh, because he can look at the waves and see where there are shoals of fish. So it's this sort of symbiotic relationship. You know, he, he, he's someone who struggles to live independently. Um, he's you know, on the verge of not being able to live independently or with sort of any sort of autonomy, but he has this unique skill and this unique gift that gives him a place and gives him support. So I, th I think, and I think that's the, it's, it's also the key to, to, you know, things like work, to all those sort of things, career, all of that stuff, is, is finding a way where you can be supported in things that are not working for you or that things that don't work for you uh, 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 become incidental, but where what your perhaps often quite narrow but very unique capabilities can dovetail with what's going on around you. I think that's, um, but then you need a you know a very special sort of environment for for that to happen and you know special sort of bosses and even special sort of colleagues at work who understand that and accept it um, and that's not always the case that's not always possible so i'm trying to you know go back to like my listeners are typically parents of young children some of them may have children well some of them certainly have children with autism um and a lot of times we focus on the the deficits and what we need to like kind of correct in the child um and but there's definitely a lot of what you're saying and a lot of what you're writing about is that there is a lot of a, a need to recognize those strengths that each individual child has and maybe foster those is would you say that um well i think it's a, you know it's a very i mean it's a it's, it's a completely you know legitimate way of seeing it and uh, but i i i don't see or autistic kids of as having deficits it's any more than any kid has a deficit you know a little girl has a deficit that she's not a boy a little boy has a deficit that he's not a girl i mean uh, we can always define any child by what they what they're not 
by what they're not capable of, um, by what doesn't work for them, by what their shortcomings are. Right. Or, or we can take them as they are and give them enough support in the things that aren't working for them so that the things that do work can um, sort of come to the fore and, and, and function. So I, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I'm speaking a little bit, you know, as, as both a parent as, and as an autistic person, but in, in my experience, I mean, I've, I, I've met quite a few parents and, and a few, you know, quite a few people have contacted me through the site and I've, you know, sat down with a few people. And I, I think most non-autistic parents are unaware that this, this is not a criticism because I would have put myself in exactly the same position um, of how normative their vision of even their own children uh, is. It, it's to some extent un, unavoidable, but and it's very, very hard to, you know, put aside the model that you have in your head of what what a child is, of who a child is, and what they do. It, and it's very hard to say have an autistic child and not be making those comparisons. Oh, that, you know, whatever. You know, my son doesn't do this, or my, my daughter can't do that, or, well, you know, all children can't do something. Um, so, I, I think it's our role as parents to just, just accept our, our children as they are. You know, there's a lot of, what I see, it's a bit like, um, you know, you, you you know you're you're a heterosexual parent, and then one day you your your son comes to you and says that they're gay. Well, you have to then put aside the model you have in your head of the kind of heterosexual life that your son was going to lead. You know, you that all goes out the window, and I. But you hopefully accept that there's another life there and it doesn't look like the life you know and probably it's a life that you have no experience of and it's probably pretty scary and so on. But that, that's where we have to get to as, as parents. I, you know, I think you have to put aside ideas about... I mean, I, I'm, I'm always sort of struck a bit because autism is, is just is understood as a, a neurodevelopmental uh, difference and then when the kids develop differently people are surprised it, it's completely normal that you know your child may or may not uh, speak or communicate in a way that you um that you do or that your other children do or that other children do, but this is, this is not that child. So what they're doing is completely normal for them. And 
it's our job to, to, to get to a place where we, we accept it as that and, and not be thinking, oh, God, how can I get my child to talk? Your, your child will talk when they have something to say or not. Uh, you know, and, and, and that one, especially the, you know, language, it, it's, for me, it's a classic case because you get, you get kids that are a chatterbox up until they're six or seven, then suddenly they stop talking and they start talking until they're 11. You get the, you know, the Greta Thunbergs who, once they come up against uh, all the social problems that arise, you know, around sort of puberty, going into high school around that age, they just decide just to stop talking. I mean, she just stopped talking for I don't know how many years. I mean, she spoke with her parents, but no one else. Um, I mean, I, I know people now who function, who have careers and all of that thing, but they can only have access to language for about half the day, the first half of the day. Once, once the day builds up and there's more and more has gone on, they reach a stage where they just can't access language anymore. Um, uh, and, and okay, I, you know, I, I don't have a problem with language, but equally it's not, I would prefer not to be talking, frankly. It's not, if you're autistic, I, I think it's, uh, it's always complicated. And it, it, you know, it never comes out right. You know, what's, what's in your head? Um, just the, the words that come out of your mouth, it's just not, it's just not that. Um, and it, it's, it's, it can be really frustrating. I, you know, I can, I can understand a lot of people who just say, well, I'm just not going to say anything. Um, and I can really understand people who don't see the need to talk but you know we, we we live in a world where talking is the norm so but i think those you know even at a really fundamental level like that we have to question what what sort of normality means and normality can be whatever works for that person is that that can be the new normal so what was your original question? I've completely forgotten. I think you, you basically, I was, yeah, asking about like, um, if we should be focusing oh, on like supporting their strengths. Yeah. Well, of course, but um, I mean, I think even that can be problematic for, for non-autistic parents in recognizing what strengths are. Because often, you know, strengths can be things that don't look like strengths if you're looking at it through a sort of neurotypical lens, you know. Um, it, you know, there's, there's so many instances of autistic kids who, who develop this very strong interest in something and all of a sudden, you know, 15 years later, they pop up somewhere with some amazing skill or achievement or capability and it all came because when they were 15 they were obsessed by ants or bugs or something you know it, uh, you, you you see that sort of thing all the time and 
Um, that, but that's the thing I was referring to before about neuro, autism being neurodevelopmental. This, this path, it's going to go off into the woods. You're going to lose sight of it. And then it's going to come out somewhere completely unexpected. Um, and yeah, I, I'm sure that that's really scary, but it, it just, it's, it's a different way of being a person. It's a different way of developing. It's a different way of making your way through life. And, you know, that difference is for us, that's, that's our, that's our normal. And um, so, I mean, to the extent that I, you know, have any sort of real insights on parenting autistic kids, I, I just think that it, 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 just, it, it just needs a, a lot of acceptance and a lot of putting aside of expectation. It doesn't mean don't challenge the kids, absolutely not, quite reverse, but, it, it, you know, you can never expect your autistic kid to be a non-autistic kid. They are never, ever in their life going to not be non-autistic. Never, not for one moment. And I think that that has to be something that's, that's embraced. I love that, yes, that kind of embrace it, um, truly accept them, kind of that unconditional love of just you are who you are. It also made me think um, the Maria Montessori's um, follow the child type of approach of just watching, observing, and then presenting them with the things that they seem to be ready for or interested in, but it's directly related to what they're already doing and pursuing um, rather than what the book says to do over here or something yeah. you know it's it's child-led yeah. yeah yeah but that's very i mean i mean that's that's you know that's brilliant of course but it's very hard to do and you know i speak from experience because uh, our kids went to in belgium to a school it's not montessori so it's another system but in in that area and in some ways i would say more let the child lead even more so than that. And one of the things they did at this school, which was actually, it's a very well-established school in Brussels, well-known, people queue up to get into it. Um, in fact, there's, there's, there's a few of them. There's, there's a real network of them, so much demand for it. And one of the things is they don't push the kids to learn to read. They just say the kids, you know, when they're ready to read, they'll start reading. And all the parents go, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. And then what's the first thing that happens? When the kids are not reading, when their cousins or their friends down the road and every, all these other kids are starting to read and the kids in this school are not reading, the parents all kind of freak out. And I've, I've been in sort of parent-teacher evenings there where almost every single parent in the room is saying, but can we not, uh, can we not just teach them at home or can we not, why don't you just give them some lessons in reading and so on and so on. And, it, it's 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 very easy to say you know just let them lead be aware of where they're leading be sensitive to it encourage it help it da, da, da. but when it doesn't look like what 
you're expecting that I think that's very hard. Uh, and I think parents are autistic kids, but it's if you're not autistic, I think it's a hell of a it's a hell of a challenge to to stop doing what you want to do, basically. Um, I definitely can see that and agree with that, that, yeah, we have this uh, constant, this idea, this, you know, the dream of, yes, just follow the child, but then we have this, like, secret wish that our child will be the one that does want <laughs> to learn to read, and, and, oh, they're not, and, you know, and we do feel disappointed if they're not the one that is excelling and doing, you know, yeah. And there is that we have these expectations that it's it's so hard to let go of. And I think the sooner we recognize them, the sooner we can let go of them. And the sooner we let go of them, the more our children can benefit. Yeah. Regardless of whether they're an autistic child or not. Yeah. I, you know, I think one of the things that I, I would say to autistic parents, which is probably uh, going to sound absolutely ridiculous. And the last thing they want to hear is that your objective has to be to try and help your kid be as autistic as possible. That's, that's what you have to do. And if you can get there, then a, a, a lot of these other issues are going to just, they're going to um, become a lot less important, I think. And it'll be a lot less stressful for the kid and so on and so on. You've you said so much great stuff about um, <laughs> accepting children as you know and seeing them as autistic and celebrating their autism as a you know like um, celebrating those autistic traits that most people are afraid of but we yeah. need to celebrate it and encourage it yeah. and support it. Um, it sounded though like you're you're talking about kind of that sometimes kids aren't they're sensitive to their environment. They can't articulate that and maybe as parents oh, yeah, do okay. to yeah. notice yeah no what i was going to say was you know autistic kids there's a lot of stress it, but with your autistic there's always a lot of stress i mean i i'm you know i we all live with it all the time um but uh apart from the stress the sensory stress there's the stress to not be autistic and if we can remove that you know if we can stop trying to make autistic kids non-autistic they'll get they'll start to become more non-autistic if that makes sense if 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 you want this i was going to say really backwards again but if you want your kid if you have an issue with stimming, that's that's a problem. But if you accept your kid as they are and they feel better in themselves and more comfortable in who they are, whatever that is, they they're not going to need to stim as much. Do you know what I mean? Right. If they want to, great. Just accept it. And the more you fight against that. The, the more they're going to need to be doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. 
yeah we have to take away that added stress of don't do that the, the thing that's helping you to de-stress is just then making them more feel more yeah. stressed and then they feel the, the need for it more but if the, the more we accept every part of every, of every child the more yeah and it's a bit like uh this isn't exactly right but it was it was in something i saw once or or read about once where um you know a sort of whatever adolescent young guy had come out as gay to his parents and he liked you know wearing makeup and stuff but he'd never done it in front of his parents and the first time he came down he was going out and he had you know a lot of makeup on and his mum said to him your lipstick's the wrong color that's that's what we need to be doing not take the makeup off yeah how, how can we how can we make it work better you know? right that's well, i think there's a there's a lot in thinking about oh maybe, maybe it's just for me maybe it's, it's a helpful way of understanding it for me also about thinking about what, what you would do you know if if your your child is gay i think there's so many parallels in there and it's no accident that for example you know neurotribes the steve silverman book it, it it's from a gay author because i think gay people get autism they, they get at much um i think it might you know they they get it a lot more or a lot easier i think than perhaps what what heterosexual people do i don't know maybe that's a, a terrible generalization to be making but um anyway i mean there's i think another though. sorry there's parallels is what you're saying between that experience of having having autism being gay having an autistic child having a gay child there's yeah. parallels yeah well i said there's a fantastic documentary that i mean i live in paris in france came out last year called petite fille which means little girl and uh it's a, it's a documentary made by a kind of well-known french filmmaker and it follows a young trans girl who was you know uh born a male from when she's about six and it's incredible when the, the mum says we just reached a stage where i just had to put put her in dresses because she was so unhappy and the thing of fighting it of trying to make her what what she clearly wasn't um and and helping her be a girl and 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 showing her how to be a girl in terms of you know doing her hair and so on and so on you know um and I, that really really you know resonated for me seeing seeing that and 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 the struggle that the mother had of just sort of fighting against this sense of what i'm doing everything i'm doing is wrong and there's this real quite sort of touching scene where the, eventually they get to go and meet a, uh, 
a psychiatrist who spe specializes in gender dysphoria. And one of the first things the mother says to her is, am I wrong to let her, you know, dress in women's girls, you know, dress as a girl and have her hair done as a girl and so on and so on. And, and this, the psychiatrist says, no, no, of course not. And, uh, and she bursts into tears. And it's, uh, and I, yeah, I think it's that. But there was, there was a great line that relates to that, that um, uh, Owen Siskind, you know who he is? Mm -mm. Uh, he's, um, he's a young autistic man now, but he, he's the son of Ron Siskind, the writer or journalist, very well-known Pulitzer Prize winning journalist or author who at around the age of three or four, I mean, the classic story, suddenly one day stopped talking and completely stopped um, outwardly anyway, communicating, and then got the autism diagnosis and so on and so on, and spent his day watching video film, uh, video, Disney movies, often, but often just a single sequence over and over and over and over. And oh, to cut a long story short, um, eventually they realized that they could communicate with him by being these Disney characters. And they realized that, for example, by watching um, all these Disney films, he'd learned to read and write, for example, just by, by watching the credits and working out what the words meant. Um, and eventually he, he learns to you know, communicate again and you know, using words and, and so on and um, gets a job eventually as a cinema usher because his, his thing's always been films and Disney films and stuff. Um, and there's been quite, and his, his parents wrote a book about it and have sort of done the rounds doing presentations and stuff. And his mother said a fantastic thing once in relation to all that, in terms of, you know, that, you know, Ron's obviously this brilliant author and she's, I think she's some academic or stuff. And their son's working as a cinema usher. And she, she says, who gets to define what a meaningful life is? And I think that's, you, you have to let go of what you think. We'd all love our kids to be brain surgeons, but if, if your kid wants to be a farmer or a, or a cook or a gardener or whatever, then isn't that wonderful? That's beautiful. Um, and we should probably end it there. Um, okay. Gone, gone a little long. Um, but you have so much wisdom. So <laughs> one thing I realized that we didn't, we kind of talked about your website, we, but we never actually, um, that was how I found you is I was looking up, I actually had typed in autism advantage to, to see what would come up and your website came right up because, oh. so you're at, um, autism-advantage.com. 
and you have a lot of articles you've written and then are you link out to other articles that are very very interesting and they they um they have so much more wisdom so i definitely want to send people there so i'll have a link to that in the show notes below the video or the podcast yeah, okay. um is there any oh and you also said you have another website um well, that's, that's a music one. I mean, it's pretty hardcore. I don't, it's a sort of theoretical music theory, really. Well, it's just my name, Peter. I think it's uh, petercrosby.net. I mean, I'll send you, I'll double check when I get off this. And, okay. Um, I'll link that to you just because I'm sure there will be some people who will be interested yeah. and want to check that out too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, really great to talk to you. I mean, I don't, you know, as I say, I don't claim any, I don't actually claim any expertise or actually any wisdom, especially when it comes to to parenting autistic kids but you know it's we are who we are and yeah i think you shared a lot of really beautiful insight um and things that we need to constantly be reminding ourselves about just for all parents who are listening to just accept your child for who they are and that it's a constant battle to not um, to kind of squash any expectations and just celebrate every little every little thing that they are doing. Yeah, it seems like something that, like the hand flapping, that oh no, we don't want that, but celebrate it. And then I think that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So thank you so much. Um, well, thank you. Oh, it was great. Okay.